In recent years, stem cell clinics, both in and outside the United States, have attracted patients with a range of conditions, despite the fact that they offer unproven and often unregulated treatments. Given the enthusiasm over new gene editing techniques, clinics may now similarly try to capitalize on patients' hopes and desperation by offering experimental gene editing procedures. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alta Sharo, a professor of law and bioethics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Professor Sharo has written a perspective article about how to prevent gene editing from triggering another wave of medical tourism. Professor Sharo, you write in your article that many patients with rare or incurable diseases have sought treatment from stem cell clinics outside the U.S. How did those clinics become so popular, and why haven't the setbacks we've seen in stem cell research made people more wary of them? Well, in this globalized community, it's very easy for clinics to use the Internet in order to make information about themselves available. They don't need to have a local reputation. They don't need to have physicians who are known either in the patient community or in the scientific community. All they need is a website. And typically, for places that are advertising interventions that are unproven and unregulated, you will see a list of conditions that is exceedingly long and varied. It's the kind of pattern we're familiar with from even the 19th century, where a variety of tonics and potions would be advertised, also usually for everything from respiratory illness to gastrointestinal health and obesity control. So that long list of potential conditions is often a signal that there may be something to be concerned about. But it also acts very effectively at increasing the range of people who might think of themselves as eligible and in need of the kind of intervention advertised. It's very, very hard to tell people who are feeling hopeless or desperate that what they're seeing is not at all necessarily going to be useful to them. Stem cell clinics in the United States have taken advantage of some vague language in the Food and Drug Administration's guidelines about classifying biologic products to avoid regulation. Do you think that facilities that experiment with gene editing could take advantage of that same language? Well, it is certainly one of my concerns. The language in the federal statute actually is not all that vague, but the interpretation has been subject to debate. Specifically, in the area of cell-based therapies, we focus on a variety of characteristics. Is it tissue that comes from the patient's own body that's being reintroduced, or is it between strangers? Is it being used in a way that is similar to its original use, or is it being now used in an entirely different part of the body or for an entirely different function? Finally, how much has it been manipulated in the process of removal and management and then reintroduction? So we have, as you've said, seen in the United States clinics claiming that the tissue they take from a patient has not been sufficiently manipulated to justify regulation as a new kind of medical cell therapy product. And the reintroduction even into a different part of the body, they claim, is not a fundamentally different kind of function. That challenge has actually made it all the way up to the federal courts, and the clinics lost. So after a long period of struggle, the FDA has effectively asserted jurisdiction here. But the result is that some clinics simply perform every step except for the last reintroduction into the human body in the United States and then move outside the U.S. for the reintroduction of the tissue because that's the moment at which the FDA's jurisdiction is triggered because you're actually intervening in a body with what is now a regulated medical product. Given our current knowledge about gene editing, do you think that it will lead to more FDA-approved treatments than stem cell research has evolved so far? I really don't feel comfortable making predictions like that. What I can say is this. 
Gene editing is an interesting technology because of the way it rather democratizes research and potentially therapeutic interventions. It's in marked contrast to the earlier forms of editing with zinc finger nucleases and talons. CRISPR-based gene editing seems to be much easier to do. It seems to require less sophisticated personnel and less elaborate laboratory facilities. So the prospect of expanding the range of people and places that can experiment with this is very real. And at that point, you then begin to ask whether or not people who have this technology available to them are going to be tempted to start advertising it the way that stem cell therapy was advertised. And indeed, the two might actually be combined, in which there is the claim of the editing of stem cells of some type and the reintroduction of the edited stem cells back into the body, and in that way begin to leverage the allure of novel technologies by highlighting two that are in the news all the time, stem cells and gene editing. The National Academies recently announced a new initiative on gene editing research. What do you think the effect of that, and, and there are other steps internationally in the same line, what do you think the effect will be on the proliferation of these experimental gene editing therapies? Well, as co-chair of the study committee that was set up by the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Medicine on gene editing, I'm hoping that our report will stand as a rather definitive description of the state of the research and of the state of the understood potential clinical applications, both somatic and more speculatively germline, and also will be able to provide a roadmap to the kind of research necessary to even approach bringing these things into fruition particularly the kind of research needed to make it possible for regulators to evaluate requests for clinical trials and ultimately requests for approval of a therapeutic product. And, of course, we are not alone in this. You're quite correct. There are other academies that are working on this. Some of them are focused more on distinguishing the ethical issues between somatic cell therapeutic interventions and potential germline changes. So the German Academy has already come out with a statement, and the National Academy of Medicine in France is already working on this. And, of course, the United Kingdom is probably ahead of everybody in the comprehensive regulatory authority offered by the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, as well as the kind of comprehensive advice they've been getting from the Nuffield Council and the Wellcome Trust. So they're also working toward findings on what this technology can do, what it might be able to do if we can solve certain problems, and where it might be most useful. So we may, in fact, be in the very early stages, but do you know whether there are any clinics in the U.S. or abroad that have already started trying to attract patients by promises about gene editing procedures? Not to my knowledge, but it is very difficult to track this sort of thing because there is no central registry in the world of these clinics. We've seen this in stem cells where the absence of regulation in many cases means that there's an absence of a mechanism to require registration of any sort, even in countries that have a regulatory system. And of course, in some countries, there's really no regulatory authority to speak of. We will face some of those same things with gene editing. Now, in Europe, of course, gene editing will probably be something that comes under the kind of authority of the advanced therapeutic products regime, which would suggest that there's some kind of registration requirement. But outside places like Europe and potentially the U.S. and the U.K. and such, it's unclear that there's anybody that can force clinics to reveal themselves in a systematic way. 
So what's happened in the area of stem cells may happen here too, which is that individuals who are interested in the topic will just be periodically scanning the internet for advertisements using keyword searches and also staying in contact with patient groups, patient advocacy groups, to see if they are beginning to hear of clinics and beginning to hear of their own members trying to get to such clinics. Is there any sort of regulation that could discourage patients from seeking out procedures in more flexible countries, countries with fewer restrictions? In general, the answer is going to be no, that when patients go outside their own jurisdiction in order to be treated or to at least receive an intervention, I'm hesitant to call it a treatment, there are usually few restrictions on returning to their homes now with their bodies incorporating this new product. The restrictions are much more commonly imposed on the importation of a product as well as, in rare circumstances, restrictions on scientists going abroad to do research that's forbidden in their own jurisdiction, something that happened, for example, when German scientists wanted to do certain kinds of stem cell research that was forbidden in Germany and were told they weren't allowed to do it in other countries either, even if it was legal elsewhere. So, no, there's not much by way of legal restriction that would stop patients from traveling abroad and then returning home. Finally, you suggest in your article that participation in responsibly designed research might be a safe way for patients to get access to experimental gene editing therapy. Do you think that such studies are a long way away, or are we going to see them in the near future? We've heard already about one very small study having to do with HIV and resistance to that virus. And we've heard news about one intervention, it was not in the context of a clinical trial, for a case of leukemia that had been recalcitrant to standard therapies. So we will see more of these as the technology begins to mature. And when those experiments are set up, there are avenues under the U.S. regulatory system and in most other heavily regulated countries for patients to have access either by enrolling in the trial or if they're not eligible for the trial due to some other condition that they have to some variation on what we might call compassionate use in which the individual gets access to the experimental item outside of the clinical trial regime. In the United States, in fact, we get this kind of request quite regularly in the context of drugs, and the FDA has approved, I believe it was 994 out of 997 requests, and has, partly in response to public pressure, been simplifying the bureaucratic obstacles to getting that permission to make it ever easier. So for patients who have the willingness to wait just a little bit Doing things within a clinical trial means that you're doing things that have had an initial vetting by an independent arbiter and have also been examined for maximizing the possible benefits and minimizing the risks. And the clinical trial, therefore, becomes a much better avenue toward getting some kind of responsible administration of the product. And as a backup, the off-clinical trial use through compassionate use still gets the benefit of this independent and expert eye. So that rather than relying on a self-interested owner of a clinic that is simply selling as if it were selling any other product in the market, here you get the benefit of people who understand the limits of the technology and what's realistic by way of promises. Thank you, Professor Sharo.